the psychological strategy, of course, is to try to focus on what is the through line of human existence that isn't related to the description of the place you're in. You focus on family, you focus on your work, you focus on who you are and the actions you take and the kindnesses you show. Those things are not going to change, even though the world does. It's not easy. And I, you know, there's a, there's a big section in the book on why climate deniers are climate deniers, psychologically, what's going on there. The latest study shows that we're down to 32% of Americans saying that the climate breakdown is a natural cycle as opposed to human cause. On one hand, I'm like, really? A third of you still? Oh, my God. On the other hand, first of all, that's a historically low number. And in this polarized environment, anytime you're over 50% who believe anything, you're ahead of the game. But on the other hand, I, I understand where they come from. It's really hard to accept that things have changed to this degree. It's hard to accept that the, the world you knew as a child is gone, and we're not going back in our lifetimes. I have empathy for people who have a hard time believing it. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. I was very pleasantly surprised in reading the book, How to Prepare for Climate Change by David Pogue, that he approached it differently than anything I'd seen before. More than just different, he approached it effectively. Practical, mainstream acceptable, personal, actionable, focusing on things we all care about. But as far as I know, somehow, no book is covered so simply or matter-of-factly. Regular listeners, especially of my solo episodes, have probably heard me lament other people's approaches to sustainability. I find overwhelmingly they focus on what I call management. Information, facts, measurables, working in the system, seeking compliance, instead of what I call leadership. Images, stories, beliefs, working on the system, inspiring. You know, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a four-point plan. He said, I have a dream. And everyone is saying, I have a four-point plan. Nobody's saying, I have a dream. Well, this book sidestepped all of that, that whole difference that I have lamented. So for background, David Pogue was the New York Times weekly tech columnist from 2000 to 2013. He's a five-time Emmy winner for CBS News Sunday Morning. He's a New York Times bestselling author, a five-time TED speaker, and he's done 20 Nova episodes. He's written or co-written more than 120 books, including dozens in the Missing Manual Tech series, which he created in 1999, six books in the For Dummies series, and plenty more. He graduated summa cum laude from Yale in 1985 with distinction in music, not what you'd think for climate change. Anyway, he spent 10 years conducting and arranging Broadway musicals in New York. He's won a Loeb Award for Journalism, two Webby Awards. He's done a lot. And for more, we talk about that in the episode. So here's David Polk. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with David Pogue. David, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for coming on board. And thank you for writing this book that we're about to talk about. When I came across it, I thought, well, I've read your stuff for, I don't know, going back maybe 10 years. And I thought, I think of you, I always think of you as like a tech writer. I know you've written some For Dummies books. And okay, I've read a lot of books on the environment. And there's a lot of very important books out there that are on very important topics, on the science of global warming, the science of pollution, on politics, on activism and things like that. Very, very important books. And 
most of most of the books I read like fall in one of those categories. And this one was so simple and straightforward and so accessible that I couldn't believe that this book had not been written before. And all right, here, I'm going to gush a little bit here. because uh, <laughs> Please when, do. <laughs> when I think of, of great writers, my first thought is like Nabokov or Shakespeare, like beautiful writing and, and amazing, you know, themes that, you know, King Lear and stuff like that, that go throughout history. And what climate change and global warming and the environment could use is not poetry, although that might be nice. Well, there's probably a place for that as well. But a simple, straightforward take that's like very digestible. One of the reviews of your book said it's like a for dummies book on the environment. And they were saying that not a bad thing at all. And I'm really curious, I guess the bit, where I want to start off is how you had the idea for this particular book and how partly how it hasn't really been out before. And I guess maybe I should ask for listeners who haven't heard of you before, if you could say a little bit about yourself, your background. Yeah, I mean, m- most people probably think of me as uh, as a tech guy. I wrote the weekly technology column for the New York Times for 13 years. But in parallel, uh, I have a long career as a science reporter and a science explainer. I've hosted 20 episodes of Nova, the science show on on uh, PBS. And, you know, I wrote a column for Scientific American for nine years. And I've been doing an increasing amount of stories for CBS Sunday Morning, which is sort of my main gig these days about climate and the environment. I've done stories on climate change and the plastics problem and fracking and so on. I mean, you you nailed it when you said you you can't believe this this book hasn't been done before. I, I pitched a different book to Simon and Schuster two years ago, and the head of nonfiction there, Priscilla Payton, she said, you know, yeah, yeah, we, we like that, but let's make it a two book deal. I have a book idea I'd like you to do first. What do you think about this? How to prepare for climate change? And the instant she said it, I'm like, oh my God, every climate change book so far is about mitigation. That is how to stop climate change, make your carbon footprint smaller, da, 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 da. And yeah, that's really important. We need to keep doing that. But it has been covered really well. Nobody, nobody has covered what you can do to cope, how to prepare for what's happening. And in that meeting, I remember saying, oh, man, it could be like where to live and how to invest and how to insure, how to talk to your children, what to grow in your garden. And literally, that title and that outline became the book. You know, two years later, none of that changed. So you're you're absolutely right. I just can't believe that. In, in fact, my, my wife kept telling me, you better hurry up with this. Someone else is going to have this idea. So yeah, I mean, the, the central idea came from this guy, John Holdren. He was Barack Obama's senior science advisor. And he famously told the New York Times in 2007, we have three responses to climate change. There's mitigation, there's adaptation, and there's suffering. He said, we're going to have a mix of those three, but what the mix is, is up to us. So as I say, mitigation has been well covered. We know what we got to do to stop climate change. But adaptation, I mean, corporations and industries and governments are adapting. They're building seawalls. They're moving the growing areas north. They're developing drought-resistant seeds. But what do individuals and families do? What are we supposed to do to prepare? So that was the premise. Yeah. So, so it sounds like it was a team effort. It sounds like you were the, the key, the core element, the writer, but someone gave you the title. And then 
the list of acknowledgements of the experts that you had was just tremendous. I mean, I didn't read every single one, but the people that you brought on, it would have been interesting to read that first just so I knew this heavy hitting background because I, I didn't know how much you were coming up with on your own. And it was really, um, actually, I'm going to read the first, the opening lines. When I was in college, I had a uh, professor and she said, after you finish a book, always back, go back and reread the first couple lines because that's what the, the author can't help but say, like, that's what the book is really about. So it's this introduction. Maybe you're liberal, maybe you're conservative. Maybe you think climate crisis is man-made. Maybe you think it's natural. It's just natural cycles. Maybe you think the whole thing is a Chinese hoax. Guess what? It doesn't matter. The world is getting hotter. Natural systems are going haywire and you should prepare and you should begin to prepare. Even if you stop burning fossil fuels and chopping down forests tomorrow, we couldn't stop climate change. Very practical, very sensible. I don't know. I guess I'm so used to people saying things and you feel like, oh, well, I'm going to debate them on this. I'm going to debate them on that. And something about the way you wrote, it's like, what am I going to do about my insurance? <laughs> and I started looking up, I mean, you started talking about American cities to move to. And on my own, I started, what about Toronto? Because you didn't cover Canada. And I was like, well, Toronto could be interesting too. I live in Greenwich Village. So Jane Jacobs moved to Toronto. And I was always thought like, if there's one place, maybe there. And it really got me just, what do I do? I mean, maybe I should have like a really powerful flashlight. <laughs> that was something I never thought of. <laughs> and so the takes are, I mean, you mentioned some of the things of, of gardening being something, of preparing your own food. What, what do you garden? What do you plant instead of a front lawn? What do you do instead? Also some really heavy stuff. Do I decide I have kids? What considerations go into it? You're not giving any answers, but what considerations do I think of? Where do I, where do I start from? What if I want one thing, but feel the right thing is another? And how do you talk to kids? Do you anticipate going into, I mean, this is practical of, of what kind of walls you build and what plants you grow, what to do with pets when you come back after a flood. And also this really big stuff of how many kids do I have? I really love some of the main reasons to act are you'll feel better. You'll create community. You'll be part of community. Did you know that you would go in those directions? No. First of all, you're right about the experts. I don't pretend to be an expert on insurance or investment or gardening or child psychology or even climate change. So this entire book was an exercise in, as you say, reporting. So I interviewed these 55 incredible experts on all these narrow topics. And, you know, my job is as a synthesizer and an explainer. That, that's really the through line of all the tech stuff I've done and all the science stuff I've done. It's an explainer. And they were all totally great. They Nobody said no. Nobody's limited the time. So that's where the information came from. A lot of research and a lot of interviewing experts. And the aspect of it making you feel better really didn't emerge until the first chapter was done. The first chapter is called How to Acclimate to Climate Change. And it, it addresses eco-despair and climate anxiety, which, you know, many, many people suffer from. The, the numbers are way up from a couple of years ago. And seems to me like a main reason you might pick up a book like this. Because it turns out depression is not defined as, I feel like my situation is terrible. It's, I feel like my situation is terrible and I'm helpless to do anything about it. So if I hand you a 600-page book about things that you can do, ways you can take control over your situation, you will sleep better at night. You will feel better because taking some action addresses despair 
and anxiety. I, I remember reading a study about a prison, a federal prison, where, you know, mental health issues are really severe. Everybody's massively depressed and hopeless. They would rotate the assignments for which inmate got to set up the seats for the group meetings, something as tiny as that. And it helped with mental health because people felt like they had some tiny degree of control over their environment. So imagine if you could take a lot of control over your climate resilience. That's the premise. Yeah. Take Greta as an example. You you mentioned her briefly in the book. There's a quote of hers that I came across. She said, I felt terrible until I started to act. And then that it changes so much. And so many people, their their measure of what to act on is, is it going to save the world? If not, then it's not worth doing. But that's not at all. I mean, your perspective, what am I going to do for myself, for my family, for my loved ones? That's pretty simple. Did you dwell on, on like how, how did people not just practically look at things before? In the New York Times review of the book, they said something that I wish I'd thought of ahead of time when writing the book, which is that a disaster coming your way is inevitable. Something is going to hit you at some point. You just don't know when. So why wouldn't you take some steps to prepare for it? Because the steps you do to prepare today protect you infinitely into the future. If you have a go bag ready to go, if you fixed your insurance, if you've made a plan with your family about where you'll meet when the cell towers are down. I mean, these are simple things you can do once and you're protected forever. So I think that's really, really the issue. 25 million Americans a year are hit by some kind of climate-related extreme weather disaster. And one of these days, it's going to be you. So why not take this Saturday and get yourself ready? Do you think it'll have a cultural effect of people switching from, do I debate about this, to, all right, it's happening, it's clear, what do I do? It's, it's funny about that because, I mean, you read the opening of the introduction. It, for the purposes of this book, it doesn't really matter if you're a denier or not. In other words, what is a denier? Well, is a denier someone who says the climate is not changing, that there aren't historic wildfires in California and historic frequency and severity of hurricanes on the coasts? I don't think there's very many people left who say that nothing is changing. I think those are vanishingly small numbers. I think these days, the meaning of a denier is someone who says, well, yeah, things are changing, but it's just a natural cycle. This is how nature goes sometimes. Even those numbers are are sinking, by the way, year after year. And even if you think it is a natural cycle, you still need to prepare. You're still going to be one of those 25 million Americans a year who get hit by something. So, yeah, I think I think it's possible that the book will advance the the dialogue about preparation and and adaptation. I mean, most people don't think about adaptation. I'd never thought about adaptation. I'd never thought about how set is my family, how how set are my kids if we have to run out of the house in a hurry. And this is this is not a crazy thought. I live in Connecticut and we hit got hit by Hurricane Sandy hard. We lost power for 6 days. Not power, power, heat, internet, television, you know, drinkable water, all of it. And I had three little kids and I was just a sitting duck. I had, I had no preparation for this. It had never occurred to me in my, in my life. And so that sort of was a wake up call, man, even in, you know, Tony Woodsy, Connecticut, there are weather disasters coming my way. So 
I think there's there's wake up calls happening all over the country. Yeah, I want to ask. It didn't occur to me while reading it how personal it may have been for you to write it. Although when you mentioned Hurricane Sandy and things coming your way, I couldn't help but think ticks because you have a bunch on ticks. Yeah. I mean, there's something everywhere. I mean, I guess the mosquitoes won't hit us as much here as other places. But reading about the tropical diseases, I was like, I guess I kind of theoretically knew about that. But yeah, it's going to all the tires all over the place and you know breeding grounds for mosquitoes. But I want to go to that well, comment on that on ticks and things like that if you want. But I'm also curious: was there a personal element for you? It sounds like there was. Of of you're not just preparing or helping others prepare, but you're helping yourself. I, I did. We've we've actually made substantial changes around here in in the Pogue household uh, based on what I went through in the book. You know, this this might make people's eyes glaze over and make them want to switch to a different podcast. But insurance is a big big deal. Something like 80% of us are underinsured. And among people who live in hurricane and flood zones, 18% have flood insurance. That's it. Everyone else is a sitting duck. Uh, most people do not know that homeowners insurance and renters insurance do not cover flood damage. They just don't. That's not included. So if you want flood insurance, that's a separate purchase. And most people haven't made it. And in these times, man, I mean, flooding is the number one damage. That's the number one thing. I was also amazed to discover in, in researching the book that this is not just a coastal problem, that of the 10 most flooded states, as determined by being declared federal disaster areas, seven of them are not on the coasts. They're like inland states, and they flood from extreme rains from dams breaking, from rivers overflowing their banks. What happens in, in the climate chaos era is this alternation of drought, which makes the ground all dry and hard, and then flood. So the flood and rain, I mean, and then the rain comes and it can't soak into the earth, which is all dry and hard. So you get massive flooding. So that's how that happens. So yeah, from a personal aspect, we've overhauled our insurance. We made a go bags. I bought an electric car. <laughs> that's that's not, not so much adaptation as mitigation and also really fun to drive. <laughs> yeah, and, I noticed you um, made that point about the acceleration. I think that was yeah. Your, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And you know, again, this this the thing that all these disasters have in common is the cell networks tend to go down. Every wildfire, every hurricane. And so it's one dinnertime conversation to have with your family. If it happened to us, dudes, where would we meet? If you can't communicate by cell phone, let's plan now where we'll meet if something terrible happens and we're, we're not allowed back into the house. So simple things like that don't cost any money, but it'll get you prepared in a way that you'll remember when the chips are down. Do those conversations bring the family closer? And also you talked about how not to pussyfoot around with the kids and say like, it'll all be fine. So did you, have, did you have some of these conversations as a result of preparing for the book? That was an example of the author uh, <laughs> uh, changing his own mind during the writing process because my instinct as a parent is to shield my kids from upsetting news. You know, I don't want them lying awake stressing about the end of the world. So I always tried to sort of minimize and sugarcoat the, the climate issue. And then I wrote the chapter on how to talk to your kids and I spoke to five child psychologists, and they all said, you're crazy. They, they said, that is not how to do it. These kids know about 
climate change. They they hear it from YouTube videos, from their friends, sometimes from school. They're already worrying about it. And if they come home and you're minimizing it or sugarcoating it, they're going to think it's even worse than you're letting on. They they wonder why you're holding back. So they they all told me that's the worst approach. So you need to be straight with them about the consequences and what we're looking forward to. That doesn't mean you can't be equally straight with them about what the world is doing it. You you say the world's greatest scientists are working on the problem and we've just elected a president who says that fixing the climate is his one of his top three priorities. And there are things that we can do as a family that will protect ourselves and make things better for the climate. No matter what the age group, you know, the conversation should be age appropriate, but no matter what the age group of your kids, you should be straight with them, both about the pros and the cons. Did you talk to their schools and, and change how school, did you take a community approach as well? I haven't, but it's a good idea. I, I was amazed to learn that 50% of schools don't even mention climate change in their curriculum. I guess that would be in the U.S. I, I feel like it would be different in the rest of the world. It, you are right. You are right in the U.S. You know, I'll, I'll leave it to your listeners to imagine which states tend to fall into this category. But, you know, schools can get political. School boards can get political. Teachers have been fired for teaching climate change, things like that. So I have not dived in there. Then again, our school system in, in Connecticut is extremely uh, climate aware and already teaches the topic pretty well. You talked about some, you touched on some things besides environmental besides climate. I mean, certainly when there are floods, you talked about how much poop and other stuff gets in the water and, and poisonous chemicals. And you talked about deforestation and extinction here and there. Did you draw a line between, because some of these things are so closely interrelated, but most people think about climate change or uh, climate chaos. How did you decide what you would include and wouldn't include? I, I actually sort of overstepped there. There is mitigation, which is trying to stop climate change, and there's adaptation, which is trying to cope with it. And in the first draft of the book, it really went too far toward mitigation, which I feel like has been covered to death. There was an entire chapter on how to reduce your carbon footprint. And, you know, my editor finally said, look, have the courage of your convictions of the premise of the book. Cut that stuff. People can find that stuff elsewhere. You can make it a, an online appendix, which is what we did. But this book is about adaptation. Leave it at that. And I'm, I'm glad I did that. At least now the book is very focused in its approach. But you can't talk about the changing climate or climate breakdown, as, a, as I've heard it called, without tiptoeing into mitigation. And a lot of the ways that you prepare also have the side benefit of mitigating. For example, climate investing is a classic case. When you invest in companies that try to make the earth cleaner, not only does it turn out to be a fantastic investment, much better than investing in oil and gas and coal companies, not only do you do well with your money, but you are also supporting companies that are trying to fix the climate problem, to reduce emissions. So again, there are all kinds of ways that the two overlap. Yeah, there's another place where I find myself thinking, oh, you know, I just have index funds and I, I'm like, I just put it there and don't think about it. But there are index funds that are climate index funds. Uh, although you did say have to check to make sure because sometimes they say green when they're not. Yeah. So I, I do have to check about that. You talked about in riots, things could get really hairy. And you talked about how uh, in Katrina, there was a breakdown. People didn't know if government would help. 
did you consider if, and, and you talked about preppers who, doomsday preppers, like what, when, what, I forget the acronyms that you had, like when the shit hits a fan and other things yeah. like that, <laughs> but right. there were longer ones. The, the end of the world as we know it, they call yeah. it T-E-W. Did you consider like breakdowns, like beyond what you wrote about? Because the, the hope at the end said, you know, we're going to make this through this. But, it, you know, I, I was thinking like, what will it look like? And I've tried to think of that. And it's, America's going to look very different. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you said is in our future is happening in Bangladesh. But did you think about what bigger pictures or, or did you also say like, it seems reasonable that this is like, it's going to get serious, but this should handle things. I tried to use an approach where I looked at history and current events and common sense. In other words, I've read that climate change will lead to our extinction, that this is the end of mankind. And I find it hard to buy that. I mean, we've been through so much this species. I mean, the wars and the pandemics and the the plagues and the droughts, we always somehow stumble through. I mean, a lot of people, we lose a lot of people along the way, but we invent stuff, we adapt. We are the most adaptable animal on the planet. So it seems really unlikely to me that even if stretches of the earth become uninhabitable, even if that forces people into closer proximity than we like, even if that leads to wars and conflict and violence from climate refugees crowding into cities that can't handle them. I mean, it's going to be ugly, but it doesn't mean extinction. Already, the big agricultural companies are working on seeds that grow in the hotter, drier climate. I think they're having a lot of success. They've had success with corn already. We already know that gas-powered cars are on the way out. General Motors, General Motors of all companies, just announced they're going to be an all-electric car company in 14 years. That's incredible. So the signs of, of the earth motivating to decarbonize are pretty fantastic. And I mean, yeah, it took us way too long. We're getting way, started way too late but it is sort of happening with critical mass right now. So yeah, so it's hard for me to believe that this is the end of civilization as we know it. It's it's going to be a different civilization. We're going to do some things differently, but that's why we're an adaptable species. I was wondering, you're talking about the hope, you put hope at the end and I could have seen it at the beginning or somewhere. Was that a conscious decision of where to put the hopeful part? Yeah, partly because if you're not frightened enough to follow the advice of the book and make some adaptation changes to your life, to your home, to your family, then it doesn't work. You know, so the, the first, there's, there's plenty of depressing and alarming <laughs> material in the first parts of the book uh, in order to motivate you to make the changes, to take some steps. The other reason the, the chapter at the end is called Where to Find Hope is that it's a little bit off the point. That's not a preparation step. It's just a little dessert for you for having made it through the worst part of the book. Well, I think that the, I mean, you talked about a few, a few big ones for me, like the CFCs and, and the ozone hole was something that we took care of. You know, that's a place where the world got together and acted and acted pretty quickly. And, you know, there's a few people sneaking around making HDFCs still, but we don't like that. And we've gotten past that. You talked about acid rain, although you, you had a sentence, well, it's still increasing in China. A lot of our manufacturing, we, you know, we pushed the, cause of it over there. One you didn't put in that, that for me has been very meaningful has been um, in New York State, 
is the city or state uh, ban smoking inside bars and restaurants? Yeah, yeah, and New York City. One of the things I like most about that one is that when it happened, a lot of people said, we're going to lose business. People are going to take the path train to New Jersey because they want to smoke when they drink. And two years later, Hoboken had to ban, or all of New Jersey, I think, had to ban smoking because people were coming this way. And when you live in one world and you think, this is the way it is, you know, people just want to have big cars. And then it switches, you know, something, when it switches, oftentimes people are like, why do we, I can't believe we did it that way. We were stuck that way. But now that I see this other way, now that I've experienced it, I was like, oh, that would have been nice when I see in there. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, that's a great example. That's also a great example of the the social norms effect. One one common question in interviews like this is, you know, can an individual actually make a difference in climate change mitigation through his or her own actions? And of course, it doesn't seem like you can do all that much by putting in LED light bulbs. You know, what kind of dent are you making in climate emissions? But the reason you do is social norms. Your actions are going to be visible to other people. And once enough people see enough other people making changes, they make changes too. For example, there was a study that showed that in communities with a lot of solar panels on roofs as you drive around, they have a higher rate of adoption of solar panels than cities that don't have a lot of solar panels on the roof. So that's the social norms effect. You see, wow, everybody else is getting those. Guess I should get me some of those. It's the same thing if you... You know, you go to a restaurant with three friends and they all order the fruit salad. You're not going to order the double cheeseburger. You know, it's you, you feel a certain pressure. And so if people see you and hear you talking about the ways you're making your house and your family more resilient, and if they see you making changes to make the climate better, putting out fewer greenhouse gas emissions, that will catch on. And pretty soon enough people are doing it to make a real difference. Well, you just gave the strategy for my podcasts, which is that uh, I had a guest, uh, Sandy Reisky, who he's a major installer. Uh, he, he makes wind and solar farms, huge ones. Huh, cool. And the way he put it was the number one predictor of someone installing solar on their home is how many of their neighbors have it. It's not oh. how much money they'd save, not their politics, not government incentives. It's their neighbors and it's there community. And so I looked around and said, how many role models are there out there of people acting on sustainability? And I, you know, there's like Greta and there's a whole bunch of people who are living off on their own, not really making a big deal out of it. I'm tip of the hat to them. Great. But one of my, a big influence for me was Muhammad Ali when he refused to cross the line to join the, to, to be drafted. And it was a big step in, in that it was very meaningful for him, but really he just simply had to not be drafted and then handle the consequences. You know, so, so years of his life, he had to live with that. And, and face consequences, although the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in his favor, overturning the conviction. But at that time, no one spoke against Vietnam, against the war in Vietnam. I mean, this was the army that beat Hitler. And, but that opened the door for so many people to examine their own consciences and, and act differently themselves. Agree or disagree with him, it's it very meaningful. And so my goal is to bring people that I think you're someone that people say, oh, he's in my community. I mean, maybe they don't live, live near you, but they know you. They've read your stuff. You speak to a lot of people. And I think that that opens the door for people to feel like, oh, it's not just me. And there are, there's community out there and it is becoming normal. And that's what I think that's what probably why your book resonated so much with me, despite it being the 
not going into the mitigation stuff, which is where I, I spend more time, but I think it sets up a community norm where, okay, you're mitigating it for your family and for yourself, but I think once you start acting, then it's going to be hard. Yeah, something that you, you said at the end in the acknowledgements, you said, I'm not an expert. I was not an expert in any of this stuff. You sound like an expert now. And I think a message to the listeners is no one starts as an expert. People keep saying to me, Josh, you know all the stuff. If I knew all that, I'm like, I didn't know it when I started. Did you find that, that the more you learn, the more you wanted to learn? Oh, for sure. I mean, the, I guess the, the revelation to me in working on this book is how much stuff there is to know that's worthy of knowing that hasn't been done to death. I mean, I was just amazed at some of the stuff going on. I mean, the whole red meat thing alone just blew my mind that, that one cow, one cow burps up 12 gallons of methane an hour. I mean, that's methane is a greenhouse gas that's 80 times worse than carbon dioxide. And that just cutting back your red meat consumption, I mean, I mean, your diet is literally the number one thing that you're doing that's putting greenhouse gases in the, in the air. I mean, one third of the Earth's non-frozen landmass dedicated to cattle grazing. I mean, it's absurd. So, I mean, I would think that that would be a common... I I would think that everyone would know that. I don't think people know that. The fact that homeowner's insurance doesn't cover flooding. I didn't know that. I don't think most people know that. The fact that ticks, which are another big climate change, climate chaos effect, don't have eyes and they can't fly or jump. (laughs) The only way they can get on you is by standing on their little hind feet on a low branch on the ground, waving their hands in the air until something walks by. I mean, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you can't get Lyme disease until that tick has been stuck on you for 48 hours. That if you get it off you before that, you probably won't get the disease. So there's so many things that seem like really interesting and really important information that just isn't publicized. Yeah, we're, if dare I say, we're, we're both a bit nerdy here. <laughs> but I think it's interesting even if you're not a nerd. Although yeah. <laughs> if we're listening to this podcast, probably nerds. <laughs> or have it, have it in us. Oh, and, and, and it also made me think about the um, the beetles off in the Pacific Northwest. And I've seen pictures of those those forests. When you think about the environment, what do you think about? Because I'm reading that there's a passion here. I mean, I didn't read your book on opera. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also, I think, a nerdy pursuit, uh, like an interest. <laughs> so I don't know about the other things, but it felt like there was something driving you. Did I read that right? Yeah. I think so. I think for me, the greatest and most upsetting thing about the changing climate is that it changes what we think life is. You know, the, the, there are certain givens. There are certain, you know, the, the leaves will turn colorful in the fall. The snow comes in the winter. The spring brings with it snow melt from the mountains and the rivers fill. I mean, just certain things we take took for granted that are in our children's books and were given to us by our kindergarten teachers and our parents taught us. And when those things change, that's deeply, deeply disconcerting. It's the earth changing under our feet. It's it's our conception of the world changing under our feet. You know, just that the, you hear about these hundred-year hurricanes, hundred-year storms that we're now getting on average every five years. I mean, what's the definition of a hundred year storm? You know, it's really, it blows your mind to learn these things. And I don't think a lot of people are, 
are mentally equipped to handle changes to that extent. I mean, it's it's just, it's like we we took a rocket ship and we've landed on a different planet. We have to learn it. We have to learn its ins and outs. And that's a huge mental and psychological shift. When you talk about the, you didn't say the word stability, but I heard stability or, and, and when you talked about this, the snowfall coming and the leaves changing, it seemed like you were thinking of your childhood growing up or something that, I mean, when you You're think right. about it, what, what comes to mind? What, it feels like there's something worth preserving or something that, that drives you that, you want for your kids? I'm not sure exactly because it's you, not me. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's very perceptive. Yeah, I grew up in Ohio in a suburb of Cleveland. And right, obviously the leaves changing and the snows, that's not something that someone in Arizona is going to identify with. But when I grew up, the stability of life was this cycle. Summer equaled no school, warm weather, going swimming. Winter equaled snowfall, sledding, bundling up to go outside. So there is, you know, we're all formed by our childhood and that was mine. So that's sort of how I expect the world to be. And to find out that that really isn't the way the world and is anymore, that kind of takes my breath away. It's hard to cope with. Yeah. I was going to ask when you said how it takes breath away, hard to cope with. I was trying to think of if there's a is there one emotion that we can put to that? It's loss. It's grief. It's, it's mourning a time and a, a, a situation that isn't here anymore. I learned this great word working on the book called solastalgia. Oh, yeah. And that is missing a place that you're still in. So like missing the town that you still live in because it's changed so much. And so I, I kind of have solastalgia for the seasonal United States I used to know. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Based on that feeling, based on what you're talking about, the, the part of your youth that's lost. Now, this may sound like I'm talking mitigation, but I'm not. Yeah. It's more about um, action. But I invite you at your option to think of something that you could do to act on those feelings. And, and this, it may affect the world, but that's not big or small is not the issue. It's, it's um, just something new that you're not already doing, something you physically, that you do yourself and that, that like is physical, not just reading or watching videos. I mean, the, the psychological strategy, of course, is to try to focus on what is the through line of human existence that isn't related to the description of the place you're in, you know? I mean, it's, you focus on family, you focus on your work, you focus on who you are and the actions you take and the kindnesses you show. Those things are not going to change even though the world does. It's not easy. And I, you know, there's a, there's a big section in the book on why climate deniers are climate deniers, psychologically, what's going on there. The latest study shows that we're down to 32% of Americans 
saying that the climate breakdown is a natural cycle as opposed to human cause. And on one hand, I'm like, really? A third of you still? Oh, my God. On the other hand, first of all, that's a historically low number. And in this polarized environment, anytime you're over 50% who believe anything, you're ahead of the game. But on the other hand, I, I understand where they come from. It's really hard to accept that things have changed to this degree. It's hard to accept that the, the world you knew as a child is gone and we're not going back in our lifetimes. So it's, uh, I have empathy for, for people who have a hard time believing it. Yeah, I have to say that that part was, um, the practicality of it was, and, and I guess empathy of it was, um, you know, wasn't trying to argue. It was just saying, yeah, this is why it makes sense. Going back to your experience, your feelings of it, what I'd like to do is go back and forth and, and see if something comes up that you could physically do yourself that you're not already doing to act on those feelings of, I'm not going to say the word right, because I've only seen it written down and heard you say it once. Oh, so nostalgia? Yeah. Or, or the wistfulness of, if that's the right word for your youth, it's something to do to act on those. And, and if you come up with something, then I'd ask you after you've done it. Oh, and by the way, this is not like to change your whole life. This, it could be like something you do for a day or two, or it could be something for big or small is not the point. It could be big, it could be small. Um, but then I'd ask you back afterward to share how it went, what the experience was like. I mean, it's kind of like saying, all right, you've had a limb amputated. What steps can you take to feel better about that? I mean, I just, the change we've made to the planet is permanent, at least on the time scale of our lives and our children's lives. So I'm not sure what we can do aside from the two things that we know we can do about climate change, which is mitigation, try to stop it from getting worse, and adaptation, which is adjusting the way things are now. Well, I think that if you come up with something, then it'll, there's also this effect of community and people will see you doing it. And people, it, it won't just be you. And in my experience, people are also pleasantly surprised at the results. Because before they do it, they tend to think, well, is it going to mitigate? Is it going to change anything? After they do it, they're like, oh, why didn't I do that before? <laughs> or it, it, people tend to, once they get it, they start feeling like, oh, you mean I could, oh, that. I've been meaning to do that for like five years. Or, I, you know, I heard about that and I, I, mean, I wanted to try that out. And, and so I, I'm pushing a little bit and I'll stop if I, I don't want to go, I don't want to persist too far. But most people feel like, oh, yeah, I, this is like, oh, this is a good excuse to do that thing I've been meaning to do for a while. Well, do you, do you have an example that you have in mind? Well, the, see, it's always coming from the person, the other person's background, their experience, their, yeah. their experience of it. So it's, it's different for everybody. And usually, I mean, I think a lot of people, the first thing they think of is like, what is a New York Times Sam supposed to do? Or what is National Geographic Sam supposed to do? Or Greenpeace? That's coming from the outside. You know, that's this extrinsic motivation that's based on compliance. Whereas this is more based on you and your personal life and and. I can't say where everyone goes because everyone goes in a different direction. Sometimes people, you know, for me on my third TEDx talk, I talked about my, my sledding hill that I grew up near, which was, it happens to be the best sledding hill in the world. Or it was <laughs> when the snows came more regularly and, and, and more deeply. And, you know, that's led me to do things that when I recognized that, to act on that was for me more meaningful than to act on some big disaster somewhere else in the world that wasn't actually connected to my life. 
Yeah. I mean, I have the luxury of having written and spoken about climate change. So I, I get to know uh, as I fall asleep at night that I'm helping to work on the problem that way through educating and explaining and persuading. In that way, I, I feel like I can do more good than anything that I could do just by myself. And that's still looking at the outside effect. Yeah, I know. I know. That's where everyone goes, by the way. This, this is like, this happens every time as everyone comes back and say, well, I'm doing this, this, and this, and this. And here's why anything more doesn't really make a difference. And yeah. we kind of have to get, it, it's a change in perspective. But, but emotionally and psychologically, though, this is the connection we were talking about before to address despair, uh, upsetness, uh, anxiety, depression. Those are all internal things. And the only way you can fix them is through external things, taking action, making changes, learning more about yourself. So in that way, I think the external and the internal are, are connected. I'm waiting to see if you come up with anything. <laughs> uh, I'll give some examples of past people who comes to mind. I have a couple hundred. So uh, Vincent Stanley, who's uh, been with Patagonia since 1973, he decided for one day a week for maybe a month or two, he would just turn off all his electronics and work only by hand. And, you know, a side effect of that was he ended up writing a book of poetry, which he's a published poet. And, and he was getting more work done and he's kept at it. We, we're, we're now in touch all the time. Uh, Lorna Davis, who's actually a mutual friend of both of us, he, of me and, and Vincent, she was in the C-suite of, of Danone and she, she did a much bigger one. She said for a year, she wasn't going to buy any clothes at all. But then this other guy, a friend of mine, uh, Jeremy, he said, I think for a week, he was going to turn off his cell phone earlier, which in terms of total power use is very, very small change. But it ended up resulting in more time with his dog and his wife and going to the beach that they wouldn't have otherwise. And these all came from them. I didn't suggest these things to them. John Lee Dumas is um, a big podcaster, an entrepreneurship guy. And he lives near a beach. So he decided he would, his thing was going by the beach and seeing the trash on it. And he decided he'd take a bag and go to the beach once a month for a year and just pick up garbage. And these are things that they came up with. And actually, it's funny. They've inspired me back. He now, do you know the word plogging? No. Have you come across it? So it's a Swedish word that combines their word for picking up and, and jogging. So they put it together and it's <laughs> picking up garbage while you jog. <laughs> and I didn't intend for this to happen. It was just John and I become friends. And him talking about picking up garbage on the beach led me to start I'd heard the word plogging, but had never acted on it. And I was like, ah, if you can do it, I'll do it. Because he started picking up more and more garbage just on his own. And um, so now I plog when I run instead of just jogging, <laughs> running. I'm gonna, oh, actually, I'm going I'm to wax a little bit on that one, if you don't mind. That, you know, in New York, I had to make rules of like, okay, cigarette butts and small, I'm not going to pick up. Otherwise, I wouldn't get one block. I'm not going to pick up anything in a puddle. I'm not going to pick up wet, absorbent things. I'm not going to pick stuff up if there's no trash can nearby. So I had to like figure it out. To, that's what came by doing it. And I've been on TV for this now because I blog about it. And they're like, oh, we're doing a story on plugging. Can we cover you? And yeah, it's been, it's like this fun little thing that's happened that I couldn't have predicted except that he influenced me. Yeah. Well, oh, I might've misunderstood the question then. I mean, if you're, if you're asking what steps I've taken to live my life as a better environmental citizen well, what, I mean, I think, it's looking forward looking into the future what could you what's something you could do that you haven't that you're not already doing that has some measurable effect 
Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of the, does it does it count if there are things that I began doing as a result of writing the book? Well, if you were going to do it anyway, then you'd have to add something new to it for this. Just right. some change, some delta. Well, I will say that I've not had red meat voluntarily since I started on the book and learned about the cattle problem. And I mean, obviously, I'm I'm totally fine and happy and eating deliciously without killing any cows. I would say the next step is to see what other animals I cannot kill and eat. Already, you know, a couple nights a week, we can eat vegetarian and the, the kids don't even blink. I don't see why that can't, uh, can't be extended because from an environmental standpoint and from a health standpoint, killing and eating cows and, uh, and even other animals is really kind of a disaster. I'm already a, a plastics maniac. Um, I, uh, you, your listeners may or may not realize that shrink wrap type plastic wrappers, bread wrappers, the cereal box liners are not allowed to be recycled in the recycling bin, but you can save them up in a separate container and take them to your grocery store to be recycled. Obviously that's extra effort and hardly anyone even knows you can do it, but we do it and we, and I do it maniacally. When we travel for these Nova specials on PBS that I host, it's like a film shoot in that there's a production assistant who in the morning begins by handing out plastic water bottles to everybody so they have water to drink during the day and, you know, trail mix and snacks to subsist on. (laughs) I'm the guy who collects the entire crew's water bottles. And because we might be in Oklahoma or some some place where there's, there's not a recycling program, I put them in my luggage and I carry them back to New York City, and I recycle them there. (laughs) So I'm pretty maniacal about that, but I think there's other plastic that I could get rid of, and there's other ways that I could spread the word about plastic, which is something that's in my power to do. So I'd say I'm already pretty pretty far along the spectrum of being a a good uh, environmental citizen, but there's always room for improvement. Well, if you did, if you could pick one of those or more than one, I'd love to ask you afterward, like if you, the first thing you said, which doesn't have to be one, but you said you, you switched the red meat, the beef, I guess. And if you took off another animal for a little while to see how that went, or if you, you know, maybe make that a smart goal and then ask you how it went after some period, whatever the time happens to be for whatever, would, would that work for you? One like yeah, that? absolutely. Yeah. So what I found is that making oh do you know the, the smart specific measurable achievable realistic time bound just yes. one way of making yeah, it easier that. for the person yeah 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 I've heard that what would be could we make it a smart goal yeah sure what if uh, yeah so what if the goal is to take meat eating down to no more than twice a week okay and for how long uh, well for good oh wow okay yeah that's the, that's the goal now. Again, I've got kids in the house, so it's not as easy as snapping my fingers, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, like, like last night we had, uh, we had spaghetti. We had, we had spaghetti and tomato sauce and Parmesan cheese on top, and there was no meat in that spaghetti, but nobody noticed. Nobody cared. It tastes like spaghetti. Was that a conscious decision, or was yeah. it just... Yep. Then, all right, say you did it permanently. How long do you think it would take before, if I asked you how, how's it going, that you could say you've had some experience that you could share of how it went. Because I think there's a lot of people at home who are like, well, I would, but for my kids. And then now they're thinking, 
well, Pogue's doing it. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's. <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. It's, and, you know, I'm not trying to bring back some like, uh, oh, it's all Disney, you know, just magically everything's easy. Right. Not be right. Easy. I don't know. You know, I, I spoke to uh, Diego Rose. He's a, a food scientist professor at, at Tulane for the book. And um, he said something that, that really stuck with me, that as Americans, we tend to think of what dinner is as what's the meat in the middle of the plate. What's for dinner? Chicken. What's for dinner? Steak. And then, you know, there, there might be other things around it on the plate. But he, he is a proponent of something called the protein flip. So we eat way too much protein. We don't need that much protein. So flip it so that the, the meat part of it is the accessory, little bites of meat in the noodles or the rice or the vegetables or the stir fry rather than the main event. And that's another way to go at it, where you're not cutting stuff out completely, but you're drastically lowering the amount. Uh, it's, it's better health-wise for you and your family. It's better, obviously, for the environment because, you know, cattle raising, chicken raising, pork raising is uh, environmentally disastrous. And it's a way to, to go at it with your family that that doesn't deprive anybody of anything, and yet you're still making big strides. So there's also... There's also less black and white ways to make progress. You're making me think of my mom. She grew up on a dairy farm for a while in South Dakota. And even on a dairy farm, they had, I think it was something like a pound of meat a week for a family of six. So they would have meat, but it was really much less than today. And when when it was in season, they'd get, you know, a peach each for the day. And they were like, amazing. You know, they loved it. Oh, my gosh. So, so I'll, I'll try to interrupt. I just remind my, my grandfather, who lived to be 107, he used to tell us about when he was growing up, you know what he got for Christmas? An orange. That was considered the biggest treat, an orange for Christmas. Sorry, go on. And this is, the, this is part of what I like after we start talking about it. And this switch happens from like, what about the world to my experience and and. How long do you think, if, if I had you back, because it may work as planned, it may work differently than planned. And you've talked about the theory that you, and some of your practice, and this would be a new practice. And I want to bring to the listeners, and I think you'll also enjoy sharing how the experience went. How long do you think it'll take before you can say like, oh, we've had enough experience that I can ch- say how it's gone? Oh, I don't know. Should we give it four months? Would it be a game to come back in four months and share how it went? Sure. Okay. And uh, did I persist too much here? I mean... No, I mean it's not. Uh, no, okay. It's it's always good, always good to grow. It's always good to get prodding to grow. Then after we stop recording, I'll schedule when that'll be. <laughs> cool. Is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up before wrapping up? No, I th- I thought that was really great. It's just um, I th- I really think you put your finger on it when you talked about the audience positioning. In other words, I really don't think that the climate chaos problem should be politicized. It shouldn't be an us versus them. It shouldn't be a red versus blue. It's distressing that it has become that way. And so I really, really, really did not want to take sides. I don't think the word Trump even appears in the book. I I do refer at one point to the fact that the federal government took very little climate action for four years, but that's, that's as political as the book gets. And I believe that that's related to the fact that you cannot change somebody's mind with facts and figures. 
In, in fact, I heard somebody say, you can't change somebody's mind with facts whose opinion wasn't formed by facts in the first place. And that's really important when it comes to climate breakdown, because people who don't accept our responsibility in what we're doing are not going to make changes that help themselves. They're not going to adapt. They're not going to buy the book. Um, and they're not going to mitigate. They're not going to take changes um, to help. And they're not going to talk to their children about it and so on. So I feel really strongly that, uh, as another one of my experts said, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. So the approach to this has to be understanding and empathetic and inclusive. And that's the only way we're going to spread the word to everybody, convince everybody, and ultimately work together to solve the problem. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. And it, it raised a question that I think I'll, I'll, ra- I'll wait till next time. I think the book officially is only out a couple of days at this point. Yeah, that's right. It's been a, been a week. Yeah. But I'm really curious what feedback you get from listeners. And maybe after a few months, you'll get more feedback. And, and I'll be curious what feedback you get. Have you gotten back any yet? Uh, yeah, there's there's uh, there's seven reviews on Amazon. They're all five stars so far. Um, there have been some some big reviews from you know uh, uh, New York Times and Kirkus and and stuff like that, and they've they've been positive. So so far the the feedback's been pretty good. And you liked it. That's the most important. <laughs> yeah, and and I have to say, surprisingly, so I, I didn't have any. I had expectations just from other books that I've read. I didn't really think. I didn't associate your name with climate chaos. So I didn't have any expectations because of the author. Just, and so I, you could tell I was pleasantly surprised, very pleasantly surprised. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll put that on my resume. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> well, David Polk, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Really appreciate it. I didn't mention in our conversation that I read the book in two days. Before I started reading it, I thought 600 pages hmm, how will I make it sound like I've read enough without reading that whole thing? But instead, I just kept reading. Partly because I'm in the process of writing my own book, I was taking mental notes, how to prepare such an accessible tone, not provoking debate, occasional humor, how to make it so people would really enjoy reading it. But mostly I found it useful and relevant. Despite all the things that I've thought about climate change and environmental degradation and things like that, this was an approach that was so simple and so straightforward, it made me think about what do I do for my house? What do I do for my windows if there's, you know, Superstorm Sandy came through before? What do I do about these things? What about ticks? Really practical stuff. Very simple. I was also curious of a book that anyone could read and use, even someone who didn't care about the environment. But of course, they do care about their house. Is it going to get flooded? Are there going to be fires, drought, things like that? So I wondered, could this book also change American culture? Possible. Let me and David know what you think, how it's affected you, what you've done. I'd love to hear. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.